Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6, where we left off last week. We're back in this beautiful chapter. As you're finding John chapter 6, we're going to look at a short paragraph, a famous story of Jesus walking on the water. Let me ask you a question as you're finding John 6. Do you believe in miracles? That's one of the most famous calls ever in the history of broadcast sports in Lake Placid in 1980. Al Michaels during the uh, semifinals ice hockey match, or whatever you call ice hockey games, it just games didn't sound right, against the Soviet Union. We upset the Soviet Union in one of the greatest upsets of all time, and there was this call. Some of you can hear it in your ears. I was nine years old at the time. Do you believe in miracles? You can maybe, in one way, summarize the Gospel of John by asking that question. Do you believe? That's what John is pressing in on us. Do we believe not just in miracles, not just that Jesus did these things, not that just that he can do these things, but what these miracles that he has done say about him. In fact, that's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. As he tells us at the end, he says that the purpose that I've written this book is so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, again, we're going to look at this this beautiful short passage right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So I'm going to read our passage and then I want to make a few observations and then we'll look at two truths from this passage that I want to apply to our lives and then we'll come to the Lord's table on the first Sunday of this this month. Let me pray before I read. Father, we sang just a moment ago as Edith led us in that beautiful song, Jesus, Thank You. We sang and prayed and we said, we confessed that we want to live for you. I pray that that would be true, that the song that came out of our lips would be the real confession of our hearts and that this time in your word would help us do just that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read John 6, verse 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, let me make a few brief and quick observations to help us just understand the context and the situation, and then I want us to consider two truths and apply them to our lives from this passage. First, let's remember that this is right after what we read last week, the, the most public and largest scale of Jesus' miracles, the, the feeding of the multitudes. The crowd was pressing in. 
The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus gets away intentionally to pray. So just notice that on the height of his ministry success in the early parts of his ministry, Jesus is not interested in capitalizing on momentum. He's, he apparently didn't understand the latest church growth strategies and techniques. Instead, Jesus sends his disciples ahead by boat so that he can spend some time in solitude and prayer. And this, this sailing, going out on a boat, was normal for at least some, some of his disciples. Some of them were fishermen. They were experienced fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They weren't just two guys that happened to rent a boat down by the dock, and they got out in the middle of the lake, and it happened to be a storm, and oh my gosh, what do we do now? They, they were experienced sailors and fishermen. And just notice the symbolism. This, this story is short, it's brief, but it's stark, and it's intentionally descriptive, I think, by John, intentionally, obviously behind John, the Holy Spirit, writing through John to draw some pictures for us of what this story is meant to portray, to symbolize. Notice that it's dark. Jesus was not there. And out of nowhere, a storm comes. They're paddling their boat for three or four miles. They're struggling. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is there walking on the water. And they were frightened. The other gospel writers say that, that they, the other Mark, and I believe Matthew says that the, the disciples thought maybe that they had seen a ghost. And so it wasn't that they were frightened so much of the storm as this man walking on the water who they realizes Jesus, and then he speaks, and his words are few, but they are packed with meaning. More on that in a moment. So what are we to make of this miracle? What, what can we learn from this famous, well-known miracle of Jesus walking on the water? Well, two truths from this passage that I hope will help us understand. So first, first, what can we learn about Jesus walking on the water? One is that life can be dark and trials come unexpectedly. Life can be dark and trials come unexpectedly. This is the scene with the disciples. They're, they're coming off great ministry success. It all seems to be going well. And in just a matter of hours, the situation changes drastically. There's no lead up. It's just all of a sudden, life just changes for them. And this is how it, it works for us as well. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is what James says when we went through James a few months ago. James chapter 4, James says, Today or tomorrow, don't, don't you who say, We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But he says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And then Job 5, 7 an encouraging verse, it says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Well, thanks, Job, for cheering me up. But this is, this is the way life is oftentimes. Things seem to be going well. You're coasting along. You've had this great ministry success. Gosh, aren't you glad that you've joined up with this Jesus? He chose me. And all of a sudden, at the height of the stock graph, boom, there's a recession. Life hits. That's just the way it is. Life sneaks up on us from out of nowhere at times. 
Now, we could spend some time taking a detour and thinking about why this is. And that would be a profitable thing for us to do. I'm not going to do that. But why this is. Sometimes this happens not so much out of nowhere, but because of a response or a circumstance or a consequence of our persistent rebellion and sin. And that is absolutely true. That happens. But not necessarily. Even if we don't have some hidden or secret or persistent rebellion in our life, even if nothing that we are directly doing is causing the consequence of some storm or darkness to arise out of nowhere, it can come. We live in a broken world. This is where, although I love him, I disagree with Louis Armstrong, that great American singer and theologian. We don't live in a wonderful world in that sense. The world is broken. Genesis 3 tells us that although it will be renewed and it will be restored and it will be glorious, we live in a world that has fallen and we battle a kind of three-pronged enemy, the world outside of us, the flesh that's inside of us, and the devil, which is our adversary. The world is broken and it's fallen and things confuse us and life sneaks up out of nowhere and all of a sudden, Even after a midday success, it can get dark and a storm can hit us seemingly out of nowhere. So what are we to make of this? What's the purpose of these dark and unexpected trials? Which is what I think partly this story is meant to teach us. J.C. Ryle, the great British theologian and pastor in the mid-1800s, says this in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of John. He says, trial, we must distinctly understand, is part of the diet which all true Christians must expect. It is one of the means by which their grace is proved and by which they find out what there is in themselves. Winter as well as summer, cold as well as heat, clouds as well as sunshine, all are necessary to bring the fruit of the Spirit to ripeness and maturity. Listen to this next sentence. We do not naturally like this. And I add parenthetically, amen, amen, and amen. We would rather cross the lake with calm weather and favorable winds, with Christ always by our side and the sun shining down on our faces, but it may not be. It is not in this way that God's children are made partakers of his holiness. Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Job were all men of many trials. Let us be content to walk in their footsteps and to drink of their cup. In our darkest hours, we may seem to be left, but we are never really alone. I think Ryle is absolutely right. But let's not believe this just because Ryle is pointing us to this truth that God has purposes to do something in the life of his people through trials which are unexpected on our end but never on his. Let's not just believe it because a really gifted theologian and writer wrote this some 200 years ago. Let's believe it because the Bible says so. Acts chapter 14 verse 22 Luke, the author of Acts, records that after Paul was stoned at Lystra, says this, he and Barnabas, after his stoning, which did not kill him, obviously, then go about preaching. And in verse 
22 of Acts 14, it says, they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so that, why, why do you have these trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, what's the answer to why these trials come unexpectedly and the night can all of a sudden get dark? I think that biblical answer is our proving, our maturing, and God's glory and praise in our life. Whatever you are going through right now, and let, let's, just, let's just, can I just say, let's admit that on various levels for all of us in this room, this past year and a half has been a doozy. Has it not been? Okay, now here's another thing I've noticed about myself and I think about some of us in this church. And I, I want to encourage us to not get in the habit of doing this too much. There's an appropriate time for this, but I think sometimes we, we, we sabotage what God is doing in our lives when we, we have this mentality that, uh, you know, we look around the world and all of the tragedy that's going on, and maybe we're going through something difficult in our sort of middle-class, western, relatively comfortable context, and we sort of say to each other, well, you have no right to complain. Look at what's going on over there. And there's some truth in that. I, I do think generally Americans are, uh, can be a little sort of self-absorbed and a, maybe a tad whiny at times. Uh, let's, let's admit to that. But if we constantly get in this mode where we just sort of deny the actual suffering that we really are going through, we... We miss what God is teaching us. So, so yeah, you're, you're, you know, when you don't finish your plate and your parents says something to you, you're like, well, what about all the starving? Well, okay, I'm not starving, but you know what? Life is hard, and it's your suffering. It's real. It's real. And what we're going through in this room is real. And in God's providence, you're not over there on the other side of the world. You're not in that situation. You are who you are, where you are, by God's design. And so if we constantly compare ourselves to other people, and if the metric is, well, I don't have it as bad for, as they do, and if the conclusion from that is that that means that I can never actually get in touch with my suffering and what God is actually doing, then we can never actually benefit from it because the only person who has any right to actually embrace their suffering is the person who suffered most in the world, and the only person who's really done that is Christ. And the point is, is that God arranges every single storm, every night of darkness in every life of every one of his children for purposes that, yes, are to wean us from ourselves, but also not to cause us to deny the reality that we're in. Life is hard. Life is hard. And sometimes you just need to admit that and you need to stare it in the face and you need to embrace God's kindness in the storm. I think Ryle is right. We do not 
naturally like this. So how should we respond to times of darkness and unexpected trial on whatever level that is in your life? Well, first, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Again, back to Peter. This is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we act aghast or shocked at difficulty in this life, I think we reveal that we misunderstand to some degree the calling of the Christian life. We are to be like our master, Jesus. We are to share in his sufferings. This doesn't mean that we run headlong into pain, that we are to be spiritual masochists seeking pain for pain's sake. But it is to say, and this is the beautiful theology of suffering that is woven throughout the whole Bible, that we can know that God is in control of it and has good and divine purposes in it for us, which we don't have to completely understand in the moment. If we could trace everything, and if we knew when we were going through a trial, God, I completely understand what you're doing, then it wouldn't be faith, would it? It would be by sight. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. So we should not be surprised. Secondly, how should we respond to it? Is that I think we, in times of light, we should prepare for the dark. Instead of coasting, we should cultivate. We should develop a kind of spiritual muscle memory. We have a benefit that the disciples did not. We know fully who Jesus is. We have his complete word. And so the, the onus on us in this age is to live intentionally. We know who Jesus is. We know that he's coming back. We know that he has borne our burden on the cross. We know that he's not just a miracle worker, but he is God in the flesh. We know this. And when it is light, we should prepare for the dark. Build relationships and habits that strengthen and sustain us when the storms come. Cultivate the grit and the light that you will need in the dark. Commit yourself to prioritizing unspectacular means of grace. Taking in God's word. Committing to the local church. Pursuing meaningful relationships in the church. What does this look like for you? I pray the Holy Spirit would apply that question. You'd consider that as you go into this week. So truth number one is that life can be dark and trials come unexpectedly. Truth number two that we see in this text, and I think this is the main point of this passage, is that Jesus is God in the flesh who cannot be compartmentalized. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. Let's look again at verses 19 and 20. So the disciples are out. All of a sudden it's dark. A storm comes. They're struggling to get out of the storm, to reach the other side of the lake. Verse 19 says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this is just a simple sentence. Jesus says, it's me. It's I. Do not be afraid. 
but a, a first century Jew that would have known his Old Testament well, would, would be aware that there's something going on here in John's recording of Jesus' sentence, it is I. He's saying, I am me. I am me. In a sense, he's really claiming who he is to them. He's showing them. He's not just this miracle worker, but he's progressively unfolding who he is to his disciples. This feeding of the multitudes was a public miracle, but now privately to his disciples, these ones that he will commission to send out into the world, to turn the world upside down with the gospel. He is being clearer, progressively so, and telling them who he is. And he's saying, it's me. In a sense, embedded in this, he's really claiming divinity. Robert read earlier from Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am that I am. And this is essentially the heart of what Jesus is saying as he's standing on the water. He's saying, I am me. I'm God. Don't be afraid. He's he's in a sense subtly claiming deity. Listen to Psalm 107. This This is an Old Testament psalm that Israel would have sang. And listen to the similarities between what's going on in Psalm 107, at least a portion of it, and what Jesus is doing here in this story. Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven." you notice the similarities? They were glad. This is talking about God, Yahweh in the Old Testament. And these disciples are in distress, and they were glad to bring him into the boat. And in the Old Testament, they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. What's going on here? John is drawing upon the image of Psalm 107, and he's telling us, he's showing us that Jesus is God. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a political rescuer from Rome. He's God in the flesh. So how does this apply to us? Friends, we are so prone to not see Jesus for all who he is in our lives. We often, by instinct and just by default, compartmentalize him. The Pharisees were doing that. They were threatened by Jesus because he didn't fit into their system. He was a threat to their power. The disciples didn't fully understand who he was. In fact, he at times frustrated them. I think they wanted political rescue from Rome, and they were thinking they were behind the new military captain that was going to rescue them. Listen to how Mark records the posture with a little bit more detail of the disciples in this moment when Jesus calms the storm and walks on the water. I pick up in verse 49 of Mark 6. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for all they saw, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Listen to verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So what's going on here? Jesus is progressively blowing up the boxes that his disciples were putting him in. They didn't understand all that was going on with the loaves. He's more than just a, the multiplier of loaves for a miracle. He's more than just a momentary feeder of hungry bellies. He is the God that walks on the water. He's not just here to serve my needs. He is here for me to bow myself to him, and he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. He's not here to validate our opinions. He's not here. He cannot be reduced to an advocate for our strengths or our preferences. He obliterates the boxes. It reminds me of, of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua has been commanded to take, to lead God's people into the promised land, and they're on the edges of the city of Jericho that God has commanded them to take. And there's this really interesting scene Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. I'll read it for you. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Another translation says, Neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I think that's the picture of what's happening when Jesus is on the water and his disciples are terrified. Their hearts are a little hardened, maybe even a little frustrated. They don't know what to think of Jesus. Who is he actually? He's God in the flesh who's come to do something more than just feed hungry bellies physically, something more than just rescue you from political Rome. He has come to be worshipped and to redeem a people for himself. So what should our response be? Well, look at the text again, the last verse. It just tells us plainly that the symbolism is almost so clear. It, it just feels a little obvious almost, but it's clear, it's true. Verse 21 then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I don't think that the second half of verse 21 means that all of a the sudden they were teleported to the shore. I don't think that's what's going on. I think it was just a statement by John to say that, man, before you know it, everything was fine, and they were at the shore. Now, what does this not mean? I don't think it means that if you trust in Jesus, he will immediately make all of your storms go away. Because remember, all the verses that we've read in Acts and First Peter and other places that talk about the purpose of trial in a Christian's life are written to Christians, people who are already trusting in Jesus. In fact, trusting in Jesus, in a sense, symbolically receiving him into your boat does not make your storms go away. In fact, Jesus tells us later on in the book of John that receiving Jesus into your life, trusting in him, siding with him, will actually bring trouble upon you in many ways. Well, Christianity 
is, is not just a matter of a one-time confession of Jesus that all of a sudden makes your life better. What does it mean, though? It means that when we receive and trust in Jesus, it means that we are safe, eternally safe, eternally safe from a much greater and other earthly storm, the storm of God's judgment against us. That may shock some of you, but that's our greatest concern. That's our biggest storm. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's apply that verse, first verse sort of theologically as an explanation for what it means to trust in Jesus. You trust in Jesus, you have peace. The storms cease. Not necessarily with the world around you because there's a, there's, a, there's a pile of evidence in the Bible that actually says that now God will actually orchestrate difficulty for you by his good hand to prove you and to bring praise to his name by the way we endure. So the peace doesn't necessarily come horizontally. This peace that we receive by trusting in Jesus and gladly receiving him metaphorically into our boat, which I think is a symbol of trusting and putting your hope in Jesus, says that we have peace with God. With God. Through Jesus. Let me continue skipping down to verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here, do you see, let's tie Paul's theology of the cross in Romans 5 and let's Put it on this situation of the disciples and us metaphorically receiving Jesus into our boat, tying it together with Peter's theology of suffering that we read earlier. We are all facing a storm. And the ultimate storm that we are facing is a sovereign God who we have all offended. And our only hope in surviving this storm is by trusting in the one, the one who created the storm, God in the flesh, Jesus, God the Son, who calms the storm by laying down his life on the cross to absorb the storm on our behalf. And then rising again in victory and inviting us to trust in him by calling us to receive him gladly. And when we do that, when we do that, we make it to the shore. We make it to the shore, and now all of the storms that we face 
are not things that threaten our security, but in God's beautiful paradigm shift, the storms that we face after that one great storm of his wrath has been settled now actually serve to prove that our hope is in him and not ourselves. That's the great news of the gospel. That's what this scene in John chapter 6 is meant to portray. That to be right with God means that nothing in this world can shake you or ultimately harm you. So what does it look like for us to receive him rightly, to take him gladly into our lives, into our boats? Well, this morning we have a wonderful picture of that in the Lord's table come to his table and to remember that this one is one who is the bread of heaven. His body is broken for us. We cannot be reconciled apart from him. We can not stand before God without him. Some people will, many people, thousands will stand before him someday and they will be outside of Christ and they will have to face the darkness and the storm by themselves. And the promise of Scripture is that if we do that on our own, there is no hope. We will be cut off from Him for eternity. But the great news of the gospel is that if we gladly trust in Jesus, He calms the storm. And now every earthly storm is only meant to prove that great truth that we are his. And so we come to the table now and we remember that his body has been broken for us and we take him as our daily bread to sustain us. So as we come, friends, let's do that. And here's what I want to encourage us to do as we receive communion together. I want to encourage us to, as the Bible does in Paul's instructions, as he talks to the church in Corinth about receiving communion, he says two things essentially, to look in and to look up, to look in and to look up. The first look should be to examine ourselves, to to think about our lives. Where is my trust? I may be a believer in Jesus, but where is my trust? Where am, what's my hope in? Have I, have I gotten my eyes off of him? Am I Am I, am I wanting Jesus to validate my opinions on things? Is, 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 am I asking him, are you on my side on this, Jesus, or should I be more like Joshua? He's the commander. I bow down to worship him. I want to look in. I want to examine myself. Am I satisfied in Jesus? Am I looking for the approval of others? And after I look in, every single one of us ultimately will find things in ourselves that we need to repent of, that we need to turn from. And so we don't just stay there. We don't just look in, in sort of despair at our failures. Now the gracious call of the gospel is to look up to Christ who has taken away our sins. We remember afresh the good news of the gospel, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we remember that we're not trusting in ourselves, but we are trusting in Christ who alone calms the storms. And friends, if you are not yet trusting in Christ, if you're not a believer, as we partake of this meal, this this symbol of our trust in Jesus and His work on the cross, I ask you not to partake of this meal, not to exclude you in any way, but really to lovingly encourage you to not do something 
that you don't yet believe. In fact, the Bible is very clear. It says that if you don't yet believe this, you should not take this meal in an unworthy way, in unbelief. But those who are trusting in Christ, who are looking away from themselves, who believe in what Jesus has done as their only hope to be reconciled, to calm the storms of God's judgment for all people, who now know that they've gladly received him and that all of life is meant to now serve that great truth, to display that great truth. For all of you, you're welcome to this table to receive and be renewed and feast on Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. Some ushers are going to be stationed around the tables. You're welcome to go to the table if you are a believer in Jesus that is closest to you and receive the bread, the cup, it has a piece of bread on the top, and then the next peel back will be the juice. Robert will come and lead us to receive this meal together as a church family. But let's now wait for one another. Let's look in, let's look up, and let's come to the table together. Let me pray. Father, as we do come to this meal, this remembrance meal, May we see and savor the work of your Son with, with renewed, humble, needy, hungry eyes so that we may feast on and be satisfied with the one who says, it is I, do not be afraid. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.